chapter 95 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson, and it's time to return to that ever-enthralling subject, Britain's fine empire, and to focus on its most spectacular possession, India. Let's remember two things about that possession. In the first place, it didn't cover the whole of India. At its height, Britain ruled about two-thirds of the subcontinent, but that was enough to make it the dominant power. The other thing you'll remember from previous episodes. Even at the period we've reached, the years after the Napoleonic Wars, Britain's rule in India was indirect, exercised through a private corporation, the East India Company. However, we saw before that, back in the 1790s, faced with the scandals surrounding the corruption of the company and its leading staff, and to some extent the brutality of their rule in India, the government of William Pitt the Younger had seriously altered its governance. It set up a board of control over the company to which it appointed the president. In effect, it had nationalised the company, although shareholders were left in place. Indeed, in order to buy their acquiescence, the government offered them guaranteed dividends of 10% on their capital, so the taxpayer ensured them a comfortable income while also, through their ministers, taking on the direction of the company and any risk associated with it. A fine shareholding deal if you could get it. Also in the 1790s, the government gave way to the rising clamour from British manufacturers to put an end to the monopoly of the company on all exports from Britain to India. And then, in 1813, just a couple of years before the end of the wars against France, it ended the monopoly on imports back to Britain. The company did retain one monopoly, though. That was on the opium trade from India to China. That was illegal under Chinese law, but drug-pushing then, as now, was far too profitable for mere illegality to be a sufficient obstacle to it. In all other respects, the East India Company was now reduced to little more than a shell, acting as the agents of rule by the British state in India. The extent to which this had happened is well illustrated by the career of George Canning. You may remember him. He'd been a bright young thing, a rising star in the entourage of William Pitt the Younger, whose feelings for him may well have been a lot stronger than mere mentorship. He'd been a minister in Pitt governments, and again under the Duke of Portland, but then, driven by his intense and entirely reciprocated dislike of Castlereagh, had ended up fighting a duel with him. The scandal had left him in the political wilderness, where he stayed when he made it clear he would not serve in a government with his rival, by now Foreign Secretary, unless he was given the top job of Prime Minister, which he wasn't. Eventually, however, the man who got the premiership, Lord Liverpool, decided that a politician that talented just had to be brought back in from the cold. So he gave him the position of President of the Board of Control of the East India Company, which provided him with a seat in Cabinet, while keeping him still out a little from direct involvement in domestic affairs. A bit of a halfway house back from exile, and above all, a neat illustration of just how far the East India Company was now an instrument of the British government. But let's head back to 1813. The breaking of another East India Company monopoly meant that other companies could now trade freely with India, both exporting to the subcontinent or importing from it. 
that freedom of trade was very much in line with newly fashionable economic theories. We've seen that both Adam Smith and his later admirer David Ricardo were keen supporters of free trade. But just how free was this trade? It certainly made British trade with India free. But how about Indian trade with Britain? We saw before that mill owners, the owners of the factories where cotton was spun and woven, were becoming a particularly wealthy and therefore powerful group in Britain. Why, a descendant of one of the great mill-owning families, Robert Peel, whom we met last week, was a rising star in the Tory party. Even with a parliament heavily dominated by land-owning interests, these new, dynamic and prosperous characters could make demands that government increasingly had to listen to. Theirs was one of the loudest voices demanding that India be opened up to their exports. Pause for a moment on that thought. India had for centuries been the world's great exporter of cotton fabrics. Back in Imperial Rome, the writer Pliny had complained about Indian cotton and Chinese silk exports. Rome, like the West generally for many centuries, produced nothing India or China wanted to buy, so Romans had to pay for the fabrics and other imports with gold. Pliny denounced the way the demand from Roman women for cotton dresses was draining the state of its gold reserves. When the East India Company started to import Indian cloth to Britain, the move was met with dismay by local weavers. There was such a fad for these new fabrics that the traditional domestic trade in wool or linen was undercut. Bans were introduced on these imports but proved ineffective. Instead, a national cotton industry swiftly grew, producing fabrics such as calicos, named for the Indian city from which they first came, Calicut, now, forgive my pronunciation, Kodikud, or muslins. If you've read much Jane Austen, you'll have seen how important muslins were to her characters. This new industry was the launch pad for such men as Robert Peel. When these industrialists demanded access to the Indian market for their products, they didn't ask for that to happen on the basis of reciprocity, which would have meant truly free trade. Their access was to be tariff-free, but in return they wanted high tariff walls raised against Indian imports to Britain. By 1813, tariffs on Indian calicos were an eye-watering 78%, while on muslins they stood at 31%. Tariff-free trade was to be the exclusive preserve of their own products. In addition to the specific barrier of the tariffs, Indian weavers also faced the same problem as their British counterparts. Factory production was far more effective than handlooms. Even as early as 1793, a Lancashire mill operative was some 400 times more productive than an Indian weaver. The effect of this double whammy was obvious and inevitable. I've taken the figures I've been quoting from a book I've mentioned before, The Corporation That Changed the World, by Nick Robbins. He talks about Dhaka, the city, now the capital of Bangladesh, that housed one of the East India Company's great cloth trading centres, or factories. He tells us that in 1753, Dhaka exported 2,850,000 rupees in textiles to Britain. By the end of the century, this had already fallen to 1,362,000 rupees. 
But it took only four years following the removal of the company's monopoly for exports to cease altogether. And in 1818, the company's cloth factory at Dhaka was wound up. The city imploded upon itself, and by 1840, its population had fallen from 150,000 to just 20,000, with jungle and malaria fast encroaching upon the town. By the early 19th century, India was a net importer of cotton textiles from Britain. When we think of the benefits of the British Empire to the subject nations, let's not forget this one. The destruction of a flourishing industry which had enriched India for millennia and, given the right conditions, might have launched its own industrial revolution. Let's also not forget that British power through the East India Company was maintained by military force. Don't forget the many local wars, and we've only talked of a minority of them, that the East India Company fought there. What's more, most of its soldiers weren't British but Indian. Their loyalty to the British was purchased by the wages they were paid. And how were they paid? With money raised by the company's authority to collect Indian taxes. India's industrial emergence was crippled by British forces, manned by Indians and paid for by Indian money. A superbly convenient arrangement, you must admit. At least for the imperial power. You might wonder how anyone with half a conscience could justify this kind of behaviour. Well, it turns out to be a lot easier than one might imagine. It's just like justifying slavery in the United States. You just add a dash of racial superiority. The philosopher John Stuart Mill would make a name for himself as a spokesman on freedom. One of his books was entitled, quite simply, On Liberty. Another, specifically concerned with women's rights, was The Subjection of Women. He became a Liberal Member of Parliament. This Apostle of Liberty in Britain also spent 35 years working for the East India Company. There he developed a doctrine of what an admirer of his, the historian Mark Tunick, calls tolerant imperialism. This, as Tunick points out, is not incompatible with being a liberal at home. Tolerant imperialism is about respecting the local institutions and assisting the people there to develop further, which is liberal enough. Sadly, however, I have to differ from Tunic because the underlying assumption is that the colonising power is more advanced in some sense and can help the colonial dependency to develop. Now, Mill opposed the idea of one nation coercing another towards civilization. He declared, I am not aware that any community has a right to force another to be civilised. On the other hand, if one country does take power at all over another that is less civilised, then, he maintains, that the subject nation must be governed by the dominant country or by persons delegated for that purpose by it to facilitate its transition to a higher stage of improvement. This is the tolerant bit, I suppose. On the other hand, it can do that in an authoritarian way. Despotism, he claimed, is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided the end be their improvement. Barbarians, who needed despotic rule to help them emerge into the kind of civilization that Britain exemplified. 
That's the kind that gets involved in a generation-long war with its neighbours and is comfortable about running colonies dependent on slave labour. Nor is this kind of prescription unique. In episode 94, we learned that Robert Peel believed that an honest, despotic government would be by far the fittest government for Ireland. Mill was not alone in favouring despotism. For the uncivilised, of course. Mill, we've just heard, was fine with colonial rule being applied by persons delegated for the purpose. That, presumably, would be people like the East India Company. Certainly, some decades later, when the company was being pushed aside, he would leap to its defence. He argued that India needed to be governed by people whose local presence made them familiar with the reality of the country. In particular, he defended the company's record of avoiding interference with any of the religious practices of India, except such as are abhorrent to humanity. Presumably, it was up to the company to decide what was or wasn't abhorrent. That's not to say that there weren't aspects of Indian religious practices of the time that we too would find abhorrent today, such as sati, the custom of a widow burning herself to death on her husband's funeral pyre. But Indians shared that abhorrence. Sati and child marriage were denounced by an Indian political thinker and philosopher of the time, Ramohan Roy. With such Indians available to start solving their problems, we might wonder whether British intervention was helpful at all. So what should we make of Mark Tunick's view that what Mill favoured was a tolerant imperialism? I'd have to start by saying that tolerant or not, it remained imperialist. It was founded on the notion that British culture was somehow superior and this justified driving India towards a British view of civilization, if necessary, by despotic means. Since it had ensured that the subject nation, India, was paying for its own militarily in full subjugation through its taxes, and since it did long-lasting damage to its economy, it's hard to see much that was enlightened about this approach. Or, come to that, much that was even tolerant. Indeed, it's hard to see how it differed from naked oppression. Ah, well, let's just hope that these civilised men were doing a better job back in England. That's where we'll return next week to see if we can find out. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 